You're not supposed to press the red button. Press the red button. <laughs> you told me never to press the red button. Press the red button. Hi, I'm George Tekmachov here with my special guest, because Steve is too busy to join us on the podcast. Guess who we've got today? Well, unfortunately, everyone, you have Douglas Denton from Hoyt, uh, Recurve brand manager, but um, I'm here to answer all the questions that Steve will never answer. But, but with more, you know, shall we say, engineering basis. And more bias. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Doug, I honestly want to thank you for joining us today on the podcast. We, uh, we have uh, many years shooting recurves together, but you have shot way more compound than I ever have. So I'm going to leave it to you to tackle some of the compound stuff that Steve would normally be handling here today. Well, I will do my best. I'm definitely not... Um uh, as technical probably what with the information that Steve has, but I have been shooting shooting compound for mostly for hunting, but well over my goodness 30, 35, 36 years. Yeah. And then um, yeah, I started out shooting compound uh, for obviously hunting, and then switched over years ago. This is going to age me a little bit, but uh, for IBO and. That's really where I dipped my toes into target archery was shooting IBOs. I uh, grew up in the state of Kentucky, and, man, I could find an IBO tournament almost every weekend, and, and I was just in, in hog heaven. I sure. was loving it. So You know, I started out shooting field archery with a compound bow, but with fingers. Yeah. You know, in the early 80s. And um, you can learn everything you need to know about archery, shooting a compound bow, especially with fingers. Oh, yeah. There, so. There's no doubt. Yeah. Anyway, I want to. I, I just. I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, we've got a bunch of questions from uh, many of our regular listeners on the Easton Target Facebook page, um, and I. I think we just need to pick a pick one to start with. And I'm going to start out with a question from Will France, and he wants to know what we recommend for fletching on the RX7 for indoor recurve. And uh, I will tell you that. Uh, he also mentions that he saw a photo on the Easton website of RX-7s in a quiver with spin wings on them. And he wants to know, does that setup actually work and what are the benefits? So I'm going to start out. I've got an answer. What's yours? Well, for the most part, uh, when you go back in history of, of, especially, George, when you and I were competing at, at let's call it more actively competing and more competitive, yeah. especially on the indoors, um, uh, aluminum arrows was the arrow to use. Yeah. Um, four to four to five inch feathers. Feathers, were, absolutely. Was what we used. Yep. Um, Better still if you could get natural turkey barred feathers. Well, especially for the cool factor. Well, style points. Style points. Are, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, you, if you can't shoot good, you got to look good. Wow. I, I have that going for me. So do I. <laughs> anyway, so for sure, um, I use feathers. Uh, matter of fact, everyone used feathers. Uh, very, very few people, if I ever saw, using spin wings on aluminums. Now, what would be interesting to try is if, say, we set up aluminum arrows like we were going to shoot a full feta or shoot outdoor distances. An outdoor-sized aluminum arrow. Correct. Then then I think I probably would throw uh, spin wings on them. But for the most part, what people are setting up for indoor shootings for um, a recurve is feathers. And um, it is the uh, RX-7 uh, arrows that 
are engineered for the recurve. Yep, to, got that rear taper on them. That's right, which helps give more clearance around the uh, around the rest and the button. Yep. So, which is really critical, especially when you have feathers. Yep. Um, if you happen to be shooting a Hoyt bow, um, I would recommend shooting the high plate, uh, just so you get clearance around the shelf. Uh, if you happen to be shooting a win and win bow, uh, they actually have a vertitune system as well that you can move uh, move it up higher. That's something new they put on there. Uh, well, they they fundamentally copied what we what Hoyt yeah. had, but um, the point is you can get that thing up higher. You can so. Uh, when setting up an uh, indoor setup, you want to make sure you have the most clearance around the shelf. Sure. So. Yep. And you know you'll know pretty quick if you if you don't. Oh, there's no doubt. You'll actually start to see um, uh, the feathers will start to fray. Uh huh. And then you can see some marks on your actual shelf. Um, also, it wouldn't be a bad idea to experiment with some different uh, arrow rests. Um, Traditionally, years ago, we would use those wraparound arrow rests that have a little bit stronger. Like the Cavalier Free Flight. That is correct. They had a really heavy wire that yep. was very good vertically. Correct, which helps because typically uh, you would load up the point weight to get the arrows to spine and fly uh, more efficiently as well. And then you start it. seeing arrows doing interesting things, like <laughs> bending vertically as as well as bending horizontally. Yeah, there, there, there is a balance there. Um, I guess... I'm not wild about really heavy point weight to get an arrow I, that's board. where i was going I, I am not either um and and don't get don't get me wrong there's been a lot of top level shooters that have shot amazing scores but i think but they're amazing shooters to first true. right i think when you look at the masses i i mean i just wouldn't recommend super heavy point weight there is a reason why you see the korean girls show up on saturday night in vegas for that world archery shindig with their x10s well there's I have seen, since my career here at Hoyt, been here for um, knocking on the door of 16 years, I have seen higher scores shot with X10s, outdoor setups, than I have, honestly, with uh, aluminum arrows. I don't know when that transition started, George. You probably would be more in tune with that, but I would say at least at least 10, if not 15 years ago, is when we really started to see that trend change to where... Olympic archers were showing up at indoor events with their out, call it their outdoor setups. Yeah, well, you're not wrong, Doug, but you know, at the same time, that's also when the Koreans started shooting more indoor events. Uh, and see, and that's the piece that I wouldn't have had visibility prior to working at Hawaii. However, the point is, it works. It hundred percent works, absolutely. So you know, that's an option, right? I, listen, for years, you've heard Stephen, myself, and some of our guests talk about how for sheer precision it's really hard to beat an aluminum arrow but when you start getting into the specifications that are involved in something like an ACE or an X10 um, you're talking about stuff that's at least on par with the best aluminum arrows from the standpoint of spine around the shaft weight consistency spine from shaft to shaft consistency all that stuff and I think Doug you know you've you and I have talked a little bit you've got some theories on smaller diameter shafts being a little more forgiving because you can use canonical point weights. You can use setups that allow the arrow to get out of the bow a little quicker, a little shorter lock time, things of that nature. Yeah, and, and I think that actually is, well, I believe it's true. I really do. When, when we start to look at high-speed video, when we start to look at um, scores being shot with 
uh, with aluminum or heavier arrows, let's call it aluminum arrows for this conversation, uh, that are, um, you know, with greater point weight versus um, our outdoor setups. The reaction time, I think, does play a role in that. And I guess what I mean by that is when you have a heavier arrow, it is coming out of the bow slower and any minute movement will be magnified with that heavier arrow. And when we're playing the indoor game, it's really a game of um, precision. You can't miss. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I agree with a lot of what you're saying here, but I will point out one more thing to consider. Brady Ellison, 900 points, aluminum arrow. And I believe he might have been shooting 27s. Uh-huh. Yeah, so... With a crazy heavy point. Yeah, so... So it can work is the point, if you're yeah. Brady Ellison. Well, it, it, Here's most, the thing, you and I are not Brady. We're yeah, not Brady. It most certainly can work. The other thing that Brady had going for him is he shoots a 31 and a half inch draw, which draw helps to Which helps to make that arrow work properly for his... And, and fairly heavy pounded. Correct, and at that time when he shot his 900, I believe he was shooting, I know for sure, at least 49 pounds, if not 52 uh, or it's, you know, obviously somewhere in the 52 to 49 is where he lives. Yeah, my impression was at that time, if my brain can remember this, I believe it was around 51. So 51 somewhere pounds. in that range you're talking yeah. about. Absolutely. So huge difference. Yeah. Where if I was to set up a, a indoor setup and I'm shooting, honestly, 42 pounds at the clicker, there's no way I could get one of those arrows to work no. as efficiently as I could my outdoor setup with yeah. my extends. And in fact, you'd be on the low end of an RX-7 for that particular poundage for your draw length. Yep. Right? So at the end of the day, there's a reason why Easton has so many different options and so many different spine values available in so many different uh, target arrows. I believe the most important thing is to get the correct spine with a reasonable weight in the point rather than driving it to that 300, 400 grains that you're hearing about from some people to make a really fat shaft work. I'll give you an example of another shooter. I won't name names, but there's another shooter, very much a rival of Brady in the day, uh, who tried to emulate what Brady was doing and couldn't get it to work. So, you know, there's a lot of um, choices. One choice is don't change shoot your outdoor setup indoors. Another choice is pick a forgiving economical setup, which is frequently going to be an aluminum arrow with a normal point weight that is in the correct spine value. And throw some feathers on there, and I think you're going to have the best all-around experience indoors. Take Doug's advice, raise that arrow rest up, get your clearance dialed in. Don't forget to move your knocking point, of course. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Do you like a slightly stiff setup? or slightly weak setup in terms of your tune when you're tuned for indoors? You know, for for me personally, for indoors, um, I will have it, let's call it in the group, but I still will put it on the weak side mm -hmm. of the group. For my particular shot, and I will, you know, put a disclaimer in there that I think, I, I tend to have some other, other, I'm not sure if it's issues or just quirks with how I release the bowstring that I don't know many other archers that do. So therefore, I have to set my bows up a little bit differently. Yeah. And and that's the other thing too. We're, we're all different and we all need to set up our bows to, to make them work for us. Mm -hmm. And the way to find that out, of course, is to, you know, 
shoot groups, determine what's happening with your groups, keep track of your scores, you know, uh, maintain a, a record of information so you're not just depending on your mood or your memory, because both of those can fool you at times. Oh, absolutely. I'll mention a mutual friend of ours, though, who also likes it slightly on the weak side, and that's Butch Johnson. Butch tends to, in my experience, prefer it slightly on the weak side for the most forgiving tune for his purposes. Personally, for me, I've shot my best scores with it slightly on the stiff side. But again, to Doug's point, it it varies individually. Um, The best thing to do, of course, is make sure you've got a starting point that you're confident in and then work it from there. Absolutely. And also one variable at a time. Oh, that's even more important. 100%. Okay, thanks uh, for that great question, Will. Uh, Moving on. And this is related. Uh, Travis, uh, Travis Smith is asking us, uh, in the compound archery space, how do you make a forgiving arrow setup when aluminum arrows are, are already so stiff? So this touches exactly on what Doug brought up a few moments ago. Um, for one thing, I believe that you have a lot of flexibility in using a lizard tongue style rest that has a certain amount of stiffness adjustment to it. And then also, I think it's real critical, Jesse Broadwater has brought this up a few times, to have the pivot point in the correct place for that rest relative to your grip. That seems to matter a lot. You're referring to torque tuning? Yeah. Okay. Make sure I was on on the point with you there. And, yeah, 100% agree with that. So, you know, the one thing that uh, George and I was talking about earlier um, was when I go and get to spend time at uh, some World Cup indoor events, uh, Nimes uh, being the, uh, the most prevalent one, I watch these men and women compound archers shoot unbelievable scores. Now, with world archery rules, you're basically shooting the X, and that is your 10. And so, but the groups and the consistency that these archers have, and is just amazing, but they are limited to world archery rules of a 23 size shaft. Is that correct, George? Mm Mm-hmm. So they are are using a 23 series shaft. Uh, They do tend to still put a little bit more point weight in those to get those to uh, fly uh, to the level of tune that they want. Uh, and then, of course, uh, torque tuning and um, uh, make sure they have the right uh, right stiffness of uh, a blade for their arrow rest. Yeah. And, of course, that's just one part of the equation. I mean, there's lots of other stuff going on, like advancing or retarding top cam to get the hold the way you want it, the selection of the correct diopter, the selection of the correct aperture, there's a ton of this sort of thing, and um, not to speak for Doug, but it's outside of my wheelhouse, so we'll, we'll wait till Steve gets back off for more in-depth detail on that. But I will tell you that if you look up and down the line, you see a lot of folks gravitating toward many of the same basic setups. Oh, 100%, yeah. Especially in the last few years of stabilization. You're seeing a lot of very similar stabilization regimes on the line with the compounds. Yeah, I think that has to do... Honestly, when you look at the string tensions that the compounds are running, and which are low, by the way, if you're a recurve shooter, just so you remember, and um, and looking at that, and then com- in comparison to how even different bow manufacturers are, and, and the cams are, we're all kind of in the same wheelhouse, and on some aspects, as some cam systems do have higher string tensions than others, but I think that plays a big role on how you stabilize your bows. Yep. Uh, another question, and a lot of these are feeding into each other, you notice. Uh, Tom Sharon Polay is asking, how much does the length of the point as it extends inside the shaft 
Affect the spine of an arrow. If it really stiffens the arrow, could you manufacture a small diameter rod that would slide into the shaft behind the point and create a stiffer spined arrow out of a weaker shaft? And uh, I'll take that as two separate questions. First, how much does the length of the point as it extends inside the shaft affect the spine of an arrow? More with some types of arrows than others, because if you have a small diameter arrow, it actually has less overall impact. If you have a stiffer arrow, it has less overall impact. But if you have a weaker arrow, you start getting, say, around 700 spine and lower, weaker, it has more impact. And Doug, you had an interesting observation um, involving, in the case of X10s, where we have the choice of a tungsten point or a steel point. The steel shank is longer than the tungsten shank. And the reason, of course, is because tungsten is 2.2 times more dense than steel. So for a 100 grain point, basically your tungsten points half the length right. and it has a shorter shank inside the arrow, which for a weaker size arrow would tend to make it behave as if it is slightly lower in spine value, weaker in spine value. Mm -hmm. But is it important from the standpoint of performance, sheer performance? Once you've got a tune, honestly, I don't think it matters. You know what? I I don't think it matters a whole lot either if you have a proper, properly uh, spined and tuned arrow. Yep. Uh, when the accents were first developed, uh, all you had was the uh, stainless steel point, which had the longer shank that went inside the arrows. And when you start to look at some of the uh, elite level scores that were shot with those points in comparison, I would argue that we haven't seen a huge jump in, um, in scores on any level. Now, we have the the uh, Kim Woo Jens and the Brady Ellisons of the world that they are our standout performers of this generation. But when you just look at it globally, I don't, I don't think we're seeing any dramatically different scores. Uh, whether you're shooting a, a tungsten point or you're shooting a, um, a stainless steel point, as long as you have it properly spined and a, a good tune out yeah. of your bows. Scores have increased to be sure, but they're doing it with both steel and tungsten at the same time. The second part of Tom's question is, if it really stiffens the arrow, could you make a small diameter rod that would slide into the shaft behind the point and create a stiffer spined arrow out of a weaker shaft? And the answer to that is yes, but if you didn't have it glued in there with glue 360 degrees around the entire circumference of that rod and bonded correctly to the inside of that arrow, you're going to have a slight frequency difference on that arrow. You're going to have problems. You will. Um, and I know that we've had team members uh, going on and or helping other hunters uh, do an African hunt, and they had a, um, a certain density or mass arrow that they had to achieve. And I like and, in Zimbabwe, where you have to have a 1,000 grain arrow, yep, so regardless and, of whatever you're shooting. And, and in those cases, we are using arrows inside of arrows and bonding those correctly with epoxy to make sure that we're, we're getting the, uh, the proper weight of that arrow, but then. Then it, the trick is getting him to group and tune yep. properly. So it, it's definitely a balancing act. Yep. It raises a number of variables that are... That's the reason why, Tom, you don't have that as a product on the market. It would be really hard to use in a meaningful way. Um, is there such a thing, from Dirk Rensman, who's a regular listener, is there such a thing as an arrow that's too heavy? And how would one decide what's too much arrow weight or point weight? Well... 
one of the factors that you have to consider is what are you using it for, right? True. If you're shooting indoors at 18 meters, within reason, you can get away with some fairly heavy stuff, regardless of what we said earlier regarding the relative forgiveness of lock time and that sort of thing. You can still get away with a lot. However, if you're outdoors, your efficiency is a function partly of having enough mass weight. You have to have some to absorb energy properly from the bow. But you don't want it so heavy that it runs out of gas at a certain point or that you have to crank up your weight to make the thing have a proper sight mark at whatever distance you're shooting. So, sure, you can have an arrow that's too heavy, but I would rather have a heavier arrow than one that's too light, personally. Well, yeah, you get, if you get too light, it's almost like you're, you are dry firing your bow. Not to mention drift in the wind. And for sure, if, you're, if we're referring to outdoors, uh, now if you're shooting in, in a venue that um, you're concealed by the wind, let's just say... Uh, Fundamentally, a lot of the uh, the 3D events out there today, not necessarily exposed on a lot of those targets, uh, but still, there there there's a reason there's a uh, five grains per uh, what is it, George? Five grains per uh, pound of draw weight to be able to um, to have a have something in the wheelhouse. But then then it's even difficult to get an arrow that's properly spined. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when you start to think about draw lengths that are 29 inches or longer. Question from James McMurchy. He'd like us to address the pluses and minuses of extended clickers and shooting arrows that extend beyond current clicker plates. So there's a, a few people out there who, for whatever reason, because of the application, like earlier we talked about Brady and his 27s, there are other people out there who shoot extra long shall we say, arrows that go push the front node out past the uh, back of the bow. Um, and there might be variable reasons for this. For one thing, you see kids, cadets, who shoot that way because they're in a growth phase. Their parents have bought arrows. Maybe they wanted to set it up in such a way that the arrow could follow them along as they grow, you know, between a couple of critical ages for a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. So that they didn't have to keep, you know, buying new arrows. You see a lot of that, right? That's one factor. What else do you think? Well, I think the most notable person that I know off the top of my head that has a, and it's only slightly extended, uh, is Casey Koffel. I was about to bring that up. Um, So Casey, currently ranked number one in the world, um, has a slightly... I would say just barely off the standard uh, Hoyt uh, Vertitune plates. I haven't sat down and, and asked her the why, but the the why, in, if, if I had to take a guess, would be she was wanting to have a, have a certain bow weight that she wanted to shoot, um, looking for um, having a little bit more um, uh, mass into the arrow itself, I believe she shoots, I, uh, George, I'll be honest, I'm not sure if she's shooting 100 grain tungstens or 120s, uh, but regardless, having a little bit longer arrow uh, overall uh, would help her uh, with the uh, the drift outside on one aspect. Um, and for her, it might have just been dialing in her tune as well, mm-hmm. because you do have some, with 
how she has hers mounted on her uh, sidebar, you can actually dial in to have a perfect tune for whatever you're trying to achieve. Like I said earlier, I, I want to have mine slightly on the weak side. Let's just say I started with a, a, a 410 or a 450 X10, and I start having them a little bit longer with this type of extension, I can start to dial that in and get to where it's perfectly tuned. And I have that uh, fluctuation with the with that uh, way you can move that clicker up and down the sidebar. I haven't personally seen a negative effect on accuracy at, I'm going to call it at that elite level. The uh, majority of archers, though, still keep the... Um, uh, their arrows cut to a length and their clickers on the uh, manufacturer's clicker plates, I would I'd call them. Yeah, by far the vast majority. Yeah. And um, I think that another factor to consider is that you've got a situation where, Doug's point earlier, some people are dialed into having a specific weight that they want to shoot for whatever reason. Yep. And they, in order to get the arrow to tune correctly, they have to play games with the length of the arrow because they decided on their own to take out the most powerful tool you have for tuning an arrow, which is weight adjustment. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's honestly where I go nine times out of ten. Um, when you look at the top shooters throughout the world, and I, and I did this uh, this year at the, uh, at the at Berlin at the World uh, Championships, I went through and uh, started looking at uh, archers bows. Uh, Mete was the first one. Rolled up to Mete on the practice field, and it's like, I need to see your bow. And of course, you know he's a great guy. He let me look at his bow. But what I was doing was looking at uh, how archers have their center shot and how they have their cushion plunger tension. And what's really interesting, whether you're um, a male or female, regardless of your draw length, all of the archers that uh, I looked at had extremely close tensions on their cushion plungers. Would you characterize those as medium, stiffer, or weaker? The, uh, I would call them on the medium stiff side, personally. Um, and so other archers might simply just refer, them, refer to them as medium. So all the archers were shooting or utilizing a, a biter uh, cushion plunger. Yeah. And uh, if you're familiar with it, biter has uh, marks on their cushion plunger and they have There's a, a vernier scale on there that, yeah. and it, a five would be the middle yeah that um, is on the on the barrel itself folks if you're picturing a biter plunger you know the threaded part it's got a flat spot there's a five on there now how my mind works with these and it's opposite for other archers but as i loosen that and have less tension i'm actually going from five i go six seven eight yep that's how i Visualize You're those. decreasing the tension. Yes. Um, other archers look at it opposite as yeah. I do. But where all of these archers lived was at in between five and what I'm going to call seven. Mm -hmm. All of them were in that range. And, and we're assuming they're using the medium spring. All were using the medium ex medium spring except one, and Kim Woo Jin was using the stiff, uh, and he was at seven. So he was setting a stiff spring to a, what would otherwise be a heavy medium position. Correct. So I think if you, and I haven't actually measured this. But In other words, a seven with a medium, or sorry, a seven with a stiff is going to be similar to a three with a medium. Yes, that's where I was going to go. And I haven't physically measured that no, to I, know for sure. But You're pretty much on with that. So, um, You know, it's, it's very interesting, the whole philosophy of plunger stiffness over the years, how much things have 
shifted back in the days when our uh, dear friend Werner Beider would do just what you did, go out on the field, pick up people's bows, you know, stick his thumb into the plunger and, and say, you know, tell people what he thought. Um, he almost universally would weaken them like a lot more than you and I would ever think about using today. His theory was that the weaker plungers were the way you want to go. I would say, generally speaking, it has evolved to the point where we really see people running stuff to the stiffer side of things, generally oh, speaking. Yeah, for sure today, that's that's where everyone's living. Uh, when I was at the 2011 World Championships, I did the same, same test, and I remember... Um, in Torino. Correct, yes, yeah. in Torino. Uh, going up to uh, Marco Galeazzo, mm-hmm. he had the weakest spring tension yep. on the field. Yep. Uh, Olympic gold medalist, you know, so. And then the, the stiffest spring tension was uh, Natalia Valeva. Yeah. So. Another legend, oh. seven time world titleist. Yeah, amazing archer. In field and target and indoor. Yeah. Just an amazing archer and uh, just a true legend of our sport. Marco, of course, has got just the most relaxed release I think you can find, right? Oh. He always had that super relaxed, yeah. Sort of the Ukrainian style with the thumb behind the neck kind of thing going on. But boy, it was a relaxed shot. Yeah. Anyway, it's, uh, here's the point. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, 27s versus X10s, you know, and everything in between. If you're good enough, you can get it to work. That's true. Absolutely. And so, you know, uh, you can go with guidelines. But you know what? If you see Kim Woo-jin, if you see Casey Coffold, if you see Brady Ellison, if you see Name the Name, you know, and they're doing something in common, odds are there's a reason. I would agree odds with are. that. Yep. Besides shooting one of Doug's bows, but that's a that's a separate thing. But uh, I will say this: I think that uh, you can learn a lot by looking at what the top shooters are doing, and not necessarily emulating it, but asking yourself, okay, how does this fit in with what I want to get done? How does this fit in with how I want to shoot? Yeah, it's it's definitely a place to start. Yeah, bit bit to you know echo what you just said there, George. I would make sure that. Don't just copy some of the top shooters just to be copying them because we all are truly different. 100%. And, and having, having a bow set up for, for our individual styles of shooting is so critical. And we have all of those adjustments on, on both our, our compounds and on our recurves to really customize the bows to, um, to, the, to, to the individual archer. So definitely utilize all those features because you will find what is the best, most forgiving setup for yourself. And it might not necessarily be, you know, a, a carbon copy of what some of the top shooters do. But you know what? That's okay. Well, I'll tell you what. We've got a few more questions here, but uh, most of them are so deep into stuff that Steve is really into that I'm going to save, for example, Sarah, I'm going to save your question for the next podcast with Steve, your question about using the back tension release correctly. Because while Doug and I can comment on it, 
I know you'll get more value out of what Steve has to say about that subject. It's a good question. I really like it, but um, we're not going to try to tackle that one, especially since it's very specific to a specific piece of equipment. Steve will get on that one. And um, I, you know, I'll tell you what, I am just thinking that we have indoor coming up so quickly. Kings of Archery is the next big event that's, that's right. going to be taking place. You're headed to that. I will, yes. And um, so if people want to meet Doug and talk to him about bow technology or get his thoughts on tuning or any of that stuff, Kings of Archery is where he's going to be. And uh, I'm going to nominate him to do the Easton uh, seminar at Kings of Archery. Did you know that that was what was going to happen after you appeared on the podcast? Well, no. And I'm really sad now. <laughs> <laughs> Our final question for the podcast this uh, session comes from not Raymond Hillman, who wants to know if he can get a signed portrait of Steve the Destroyer Anderson. You need to talk to Linda about that one. She's in charge of licensing for imagery. of. Uh... And Aston Darcy, when George says he'll cut something from the podcast, how often is it actually cut? What, you can't tell? How often do you think I cut anything from the podcast? As little as possible. And then, uh, let's see here. There was one more. Ah, this one. Joe Guzzotti. Joe. Really? He wants to know. He's asking Steve. Does this mean we can post pics of our indoor targets now? <laughs> As if that's ever okay. <laughs> Why isn't it okay? That's the end of the show. <laughs>